Hello, everybody. I'm going to be going over the study guide for the ecclesiastical terms that we looked at and that you have done for homework. If you did your homework correctly, then you will already know a lot of these answers. So I'm going to supplement what you've already researched, uh, focusing on the things that um, I really want you to know. And I will be adding new material, so take notes. So let's go right to the beginning here. Let's go to item number two, which is the word ecclesial. The word ecclesial in Greek is ecclesia, in Latin is ecclesia, and it simply is the word that's used for church. So ecclesial is the adjective word for church. So for example, if you said this is an ecclesial matter, okay, you're saying this is really a church matter. Ecclesiology, of course, therefore, is going to number one. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. I, in fact, took an entire semester of ecclesiology when I studied for my theology degree in Rome. Ecclesiology, this class that you're taking, in fact, is an ecclesiology class. This class is ecclesiology and sacramentology, if you want to be fancy about it instead of simply calling it church and sacraments. So since ecclesiology is about the church, let's talk about the church. Up until now, we've been talking about the nature of the church. What is the church? What are the marks of the church? What is the mission of the church, right? We looked at evangelization. Now I want to look at the structure of the church. How is church to be understood? Because there are various different terms that can be used. For example, you have the universal church. And the universal church is the church of the entire world. That means you take all the dioceses put together. Um, all the people in the church all over the world, everyone who identifies as Catholic, this is what we call the church, the universal church. Um, and this is opposed to, I'm skipping over to number six, the local church. Now, when you did your homework assignment, I told you, don't put down that the local church is simply your church down the street. Okay, that's the wrong answer. A local church simply refers to all the people who reside within the ter territorial boundaries, known as a diocese, governed by their diocesan bishop. Okay, so... I told you guys a long time ago that the church is not a building, ultimately. Church is the people of God. So the local church is the people of God who reside within the territory known as a diocese under the care of their diocesan bishop. How is that different than a diocese? Well, a diocese, number seven, a diocese is very similar. It's actually almost synonymous with a local church. The difference is that when you use the word diocese, you're thinking about geography, territory. So a diocese is the geographical territory within which the people of God reside under the care of their diocesan bishop. Okay? So local church is about the people within the territory within the diocese, and the diocese is the territory within which the people of God reside under their bishop. Under their bishop, number eight, their diocesan bishop. 
Who is a diocesan bishop? It's important to make this distinction because a diocese can have more than one bishop. San Diego has more than one bishop. There are some cities that have as many as five bishops, maybe even six. So if you have more than one bishop, um, only one of them is the chief bishop. And that's who a diocesan bishop is. He is the chief, he is the principal bishop of that diocese. The other bishops really are subject to his authority. And so hence you have auxiliary bishops. The word auxilium in Latin means help. So they're kind of like bishops who help. They assist the diocesan bishop and they are subject to his authority. All right. So let's say that the diocesan bishop has two auxiliary bishops and they all disagree on something regarding what to do in their diocese. Well, all the diocesan bishop has to do is say, everybody here who is the diocesan bishop, raise your hand. That's what I thought. Okay, because he's the one in charge. So the auxiliary bishop is the bishop whose task it is to assist the diocesan bishop in the carrying out of his pastoral duties. Now, you also have coadjutor bishops, also number nine we're looking at here. A coadjutor bishop is the same thing as an auxiliary bishop. He's a bishop who assists the diocesan bishop. The only difference is that a coadjutor bishop has the right of succession, which means that if the diocesan bishop were to die suddenly or if he were to retire, if you're a coadjutor bishop, you are the next person in line to be the diocesan bishop. An auxiliary bishop, that's not the case. If you're an auxiliary bishop and the diocesan bishop dies or retires, then you are still going to be the auxiliary bishop when they assign a new diocesan bishop. And that's really the only difference between the two. Okay, then you have number 10. You have a, this figure known as a vicar general. A vicar general is someone who functions as the right-hand man of the bishop, of the diocesan bishop. He is the one who exercises authority in the bishop's name. Um, it can be an auxiliary bishop who also has the title of vicar general, but sometimes it can even just be a priest. Like here in San Diego, I'm pretty sure that Father Steve Callahan is still the vicar general of the Diocese of San Diego. What that means is that when Monsignor Callahan signs a document, his signature bears the authority of the bishop. It's just as good as if the bishop signs something, so he carries his authority. Why do diocesan bishops have vicar generals? Why do they have auxiliary bishops? You know why? Because dioceses nowadays are so huge, they need a lot of help, and they need to delegate their authority to others. And, uh, I mean, take, for example, confirmations. Confirmation is a sacrament that's typically exercised by a bishop, but can you imagine a bishop going around to every single parish to confirm at Easter time? He's not able to, which is why uh, he sends out his auxiliary bishops to do that task. Um, so he needs a lot of help. Okay, moving along. 
to an archbishop. Um, you know, the reason why they call archbishops is really because they are simply the bishops of an archdiocese. Okay? An archdiocese is simply a very large diocese. It is the diocese typically of a very large city, like a metropolitan-sized city. So San Diego um, is not as large as Los Angeles, okay? Um, so Los Angeles is an archdiocese. Um, Boston is an archdiocese. New York is an archdiocese. You just think of these really large metropolitan-sized city. Uh, you know what, frankly, strictly speaking, I suppose San Diego would be technically a metropolis, but um, nonetheless, we are not considered an archdiocese. So, the, so an archdiocese simply is a diocese of a very large or even um, preeminent city. So consider Baltimore. Baltimore is not a metropolitan-sized city. So why is Baltimore an archdiocese? I'll tell you why, because Baltimore is the first diocese in the United States that was created. And so therefore, Baltimore has a sort of prestige about it. And so this whole rule about an archdiocese necessarily having to be a metropolis uh, is not always followed. Um, it can simply be attached to the name of, of a very important uh, city for historical reasons and um, other such reasons. So then you have um, an ecclesiastical province. An ecclesiastical province, as you probably already researched, is simply a cluster of different dioceses put together. Okay? So, for example... In Southern California, you have the Diocese of San Diego, San Bernardino, Orange, and Los Angeles. You take all these dioceses, and you put them together, and you have what is known as an ecclesiastical province. Um, and the reason for this is because the Roman Catholic Church divides up territory in the world for organizational purposes along the same lines as the ancient Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, you may have studied this, divided up the world into provinces. And there was, once upon a time, an emperor by the name of Diocletian who lived in the third century and Diocletian reorganized the Roman Empire, and he says, you know, I think it would be useful if we subdivided provinces into smaller areas. And so therefore, you'll never believe it, but yes, Diocletian said these smaller uh, subdivisions of provinces, we're going to call them dioceses. Okay, so provinces consists of dioceses, and we continue to use this word today. The irony is that Diocletian was one of the worst Christian persecutors. He killed so many Christians 
because at the time, of course, uh, being a Christian was a crime in the Roman Empire. And, uh, and yet we continue to use his organizational style. Um, except for persecuting Christians, um, Diocletian actually was a pretty good emperor. Okay, so that's an ecclesiastical province. All these different um, dioceses put together into a province. And as you might have, something I want to point out here is that archbishops do not have authority over other bishops. People oftentimes have this notion that the church is run in the following way. You have the Pope at the top, and he gives orders to his cardinals, and then the cardinals have authority over archbishops, and the archbishops have authority over bishops, and the bishops have authority over priests, and you have this kind of top-down model. And actually, the church does not function in that way. And I want to focus on the relationship between archbishops and bishops. The Archbishop of Los Angeles, for example, cannot tell... Bishop McElroy here in San Diego, how to run his diocese. Remember, the reason why he's called an archbishop is simply because he is the bishop of an archdiocese. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a story, a true story. There was a, many years ago, there was a woman who did not like the bishop of San Diego at the time. His name was Bishop Buddy, if you can believe it. And she did not like Bishop Buddy, and so this resident in San Diego would call the Archbishop in Los Angeles complaining about Bishop Buddy. And the Archbishop called Bishop Buddy and said to him, you know, I have this woman from your diocese, she keeps calling me, asking, uh, sorry, complaining about you, what should I tell her? And Bishop Buddy told the Archbishop of Los Angeles, he says, well, the first thing you can tell her is that you have no authority in my diocese. And that was a very good point. And the Archbishop should have known to say that from the beginning. I will say, however, that Archbishops do have the task of kind of keeping watch over their ecclesiastical province. So even though they don't have authority over the other bishops. They do have a responsibility to kind of know what's going on. And it is for this reason that all the bishops in an ecclesiastical province, they do get together for meetings. They do get together for meetings. And as you might imagine, when they do meet, guess who runs the meetings? The archbishop of the ecclesiastical province. Um, so they don't really have uh, jurisdictional authority. They only carry a sort of a moral authority. So the other bishops kind of look up to the archbishop. Because after all, if you were chosen by the pope to be an archbishop, then you know, that means that you must be um, a wise and holy person. Um, a person who knows what they're doing. Um, and let me see now. Okay, so moving along to, all right, and I think that pretty much covers that. It's number 13. Number 14, 
What does the word religious mean as a noun? Religious. So you can have a person who says, I am a religious. And when they say that, you want to punch them in the face. It's kind of like, please finish the sentence. You are a religious what? No, 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 no. It's a noun. And if you are a religious, it simply means that you are a person who belongs to a religious order. You are in the so-called consecrated life. You are a man of the cloth. You have taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and you belong to some sort of community. You want to know an example of someone who is uh, religious? Look no further than Father Sarfras. Look no further than Father Max. Okay, these, uh, Brother Bobby, these are all religious because they belong to the Augustinian order. So if you belong to a religious order or, com or community, if you are a nun, for example, you are a religious. If you are a monk, you are a religious. And in addition to Augustinians, you also have other ones. I'm sure you've heard of Franciscans before. You may have heard of Benedictines before. You may have heard of Dominicans before. And there are tons and tons of different communities known as religious. Um, religious do not answer to the diocesan bishop. Okay, so for example, Father Max, an Augustinian, he does not, uh, he is not subject to the authority of the diocesan bishop, Bishop McElroy. Um, his boss, so to speak, is the provincial, the provincial, and that is another one of our terms, that is number 15. So the, the uh, provincial is the head of a religious order within his province. And I don't want to confuse you guys because earlier we looked at the term ecclesiastical province. And I don't want you to confuse that with a religious province because they are drawn along different lines. The Diocese of San Diego, for example, stretches from San Ysidro right up to the border of Mexico, all the way up to the border of Orange County. Now, consider the province of the Augustinians of the West. By the way, that's the name of the province you belong to right now. It's called the Augustinians of the West. And that territory is the entire state of California. And guess who is the head of the Augustinians of the Augustinians of the West? It is Father, Father Gary Sanders, and he lives right on 3266 Nutmeg Street. He is the provincial, and he is the head of all the Augustinians in California. So that is the authority structure. And then, of course, the provincial, who does he answer to? He answers to the, number 16, the superior general. And the superior general is the head of all the Augustinians of the world. All right? The head of all the Augustinians of the world. So this is how the chain of command goes. Uh, Father Max answers to the provincial. 
and the provincial address to the superior general, although the Augustinians call him the prior general, but it's the same concept. And who does a superior general answer to? The answer is the Pope himself. Okay? And that's the difference between a diocesan priest or deacon and a religious priest or deacon. A diocesan priest or deacon answers to his diocesan bishop, and then that bishop answers to the Pope himself. And that's kind of the difference between these two. Okay, moving right along. Let's take a look at cardinals. Uh, Once again, a lot of misconceptions about cardinals. Um, I actually want to skip over to number 18 for now. Um, Cardinals do not have authority over other bishops. They do not have authority over other bishops. Um, So... Uh, let's say you have some cardinal in Rome, you know. Um, he can't just call up the bishop of San Diego or San Francisco or whoever and just say, hey, uh, you need to do this. You must do this. I command you to do this. Well, a good bishop would just say, you know, who do you think you are? Okay? So they don't have authority outside of their own diocese. So who is a cardinal? Going back to number 17, a cardinal is very simply, he is, the, he is a candidate and at the same time an elector for the papacy. So if you're a cardinal, that means that you are a candidate to be the next pope and you are also an elector for the next pope. And cardinals also have one more function. So they don't just sit around waiting for the Pope to die so they can use their, um, their position in that way. Cardinals also function as advisors to the Pope. So sometimes the Pope might call all the cardinals together to Rome to the Vatican, and they will consult him on a variety of matters. Because if you're a good pope, you will consider the opinion of others. Um, And so all the cardinals put together, they form a group known as the College of Cardinals. So just to repeat myself, a cardinal is an elector and a candidate for the papacy, and he is also a member of the College of Cardinals, which advises the Pope. When it is time to choose the next Pope, what happens is known as a conclave. Um, The process of choosing the next Pope is known as the conclave. And the conclave takes place, and it has for many centuries now, in the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. I don't know if you guys ever saw that very famous painting of Michelangelo where you have God the Father reaching out with his index finger and you have Adam on the other side and their fingers are almost touching. Okay? That, w- that is in the Sistine Chapel. And 
So the, the conclate is this process. And we will learn more about conclaves, I think, in the near future. I want to spend a little bit more time about how popes are chosen. You may remember when Pope Francis was chosen, and so we will see that later. Okay, let's move on to the word papacy. Papacy simply refers to the office of the pope. And when I say the office, I'm not talking about the room where his desk and his computer is and his drawers and all that stuff. I'm talking about the word office here means his position. Okay, his, his, the position of being Pope. So, so president is to presidency like Pope is to papacy. That's the idea, to use an analogy. Um, and the, the, the Pope... This is also something we're going to be looking at later. The Pope is the diocesan bishop of Rome. A lot of people don't think of the Pope as being the diocesan bishop of Rome. A lot of people say, I mean, if you ask a lot of Catholics, who is the bishop of Rome, the diocesan bishop of Rome? A lot of times they'll scratch their heads. You know, they'll say, well, it can't be the Pope because he's kind of like the head of the entire world. Well, it doesn't exactly work that way. Um, the Pope is, in fact, the diocesan bishop of Rome in the same sense that Bishop McElroy is the bishop of San Diego. He is their pastor of the citizens of Rome, of that local church. He obviously has a lot of other tasks, which is why he has you know, like around five auxiliary bishops helping him too. But nonetheless, he is the pastor of the people of God who reside in Rome. Okay, number 21, collegiality. Collegiality is the, the teaching that the church is not governed by the Pope alone. A lot of people have this misconception that the church is this top-down organization and that the Pope kind of you know, calls all the bishops on the phone and tells them what to do in their own dioceses. Okay? It does not work that way. The church is not a top-down organization that way. It's not like Pope Francis calls um, bishops in various cities and tells them, okay, this is what you're going to do about coronavirus in your diocese. And uh, he'll call the Bishop of San Diego, hey, I heard you're closing down an elementary Catholic school. Um, I forbid it. I want you to make this work or whatever. He doesn't, on a regular basis, do this. That's because each bishop is a successor of the apostles in his own right. And by virtue of that, because he has his authority from Christ himself, each bishop runs his own diocese. So the Pope does not run all the dioceses. All the bishops run the, the church in their own respective dioceses all over the world. Um, rather than looking at the Pope as a top-down kind of figure, it's more accurate to look at the Pope as being the glue that keeps them all together. Um, the Pope is the center of gravity. You might remember all those circles that we drew in class. Bishop, 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 all these circles. At the center of that circle um, is the Pope. And he does have authority over the other bishops. In fact, he's the only bishop that really has authority over all the other bishops in the church. 
but he does not exercise that authority unless he has to. So the Pope can theoretically call a bishop and say, you're going to do this. Okay, but he would only do so if he thought that there was a bishop that was doing something wrong or a bishop is kind of going astray. So the Pope can intervene in matters such as those. So collegiality is this notion that the church is governed by the Pope and the bishops together. Okay, they all collectively collegiality, you can, you can hear the similarity, the root of the word there, they all collectively govern the church, and not just the Pope. Um, I'd like to skip down to number 23. Number 23 says um, ecumenical council. The best example of collegiality, this notion of the, how it's all the bishops who govern the church together, the best example of that is an ecumenical council. An ecumenical council is the worldwide gathering of all the bishops in the world convened by the Pope to discuss and resolve issues in the church relating to doctrine or practice. Okay? So... Every once in a long while, the Pope will call all of the bishops in the world to a particular city, and he'll say, we need to talk about this. And usually, ecumenical councils are called in response to some kind of a big problem in the church, Okay, as we're going to see a little bit later. Um, ecumenical councils are not called very often. There have only been 21 ecumenical councils in the history of the church. We are living in the 21st century. So what does this tell you? That tells you that ecumenical councils, on average, are only called about once every 100 years. Only about once a century. It doesn't happen very often. Uh, the first ever ecumenical council that was ever called was the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea today um, would be located in the country of Turkey. And Nicaea was called in the 4th century by the first Christian emperor, Constantine the Great. Constantine the Great um, saw that there was a very big problem in the church. Namely, and it was, kind of, it was not good for the empire because it was dividing up the empire as well. Uh, there was this big heresy in the church known as Arianism. A heresy is a false teaching, of course. And there was this priest by the name of Arius, and he taught that the Son of God is not actually God. You might remember last semester I spent a lot of energy explaining to you guys that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal well, he didn't see it that way. For Arius, the priest from Alexandria in the 4th century, Arius said, the Father is God. There is no Trinity, and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not God. He focused primarily on the Son. The Son is not equal to the Father, was his claim. And Arius was very influential 
And he, he actually gained a pretty good amount of followers. And there were a lot of people that were kind of seeing it his way. Um, Arius was suggesting that if you believe in Trinity, that uh, this somehow denies the oneship of God. He even had a few bishops in his corner. And so you had, you know, even fistfights in churches sometimes over this issue, over whether Jesus is God or not. It's not that Arius didn't think that Jesus wasn't great. You know, uh, Arius loved Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one who redeemed us from our sins on the cross and so forth. But just don't call him God is what his claim was. That's going too far. Don't call him God. He's not equal to the Father. So anyway, uh, the Emperor Constantine saw that this was a very serious issue. And so it was his idea to call the first ever uh, gathering of all the bishops of the world, or at least all who could make it. And they all met in Nicaea to discuss this issue. And, you know, Constantine said to the bishops, work this out. And so the bishops um, did work it out, and they very easily actually uh, affirmed that Jesus is in fact equal to the Father, the Son of God is equal to the Father, and that he always existed, as opposed to what Arius believed. Arius believed that the Son of God was the first thing that God the Father created. So he is not an eternal being. He did not always exist. Turns out that Arius uh, didn't have as much support among the bishops as he thought. There really were only three bishops that sided with him. And there were a couple of hundred others that held the orthodox position, of course, that the son is equal to the father. And so Arianism was handily defeated um, at that council, and Arius got into big trouble, and he was exiled for it. Um, and uh, while the bishops were there at the Council of Nicaea, they decided that they would also hammer out what they do believe. And so they composed the first universal creed of the Catholic Church. It's known today as the Nicene Creed for that reason. And if you listen to the Nicene Creed, you can hear that it really kind of rubs it in, that uh, rubs it into Arius. Okay, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. You know, this is all speaking about the Son. He was begotten but not made, okay? And he is of the same substance as the Father. In the Creed, we say consubstantial with the Father. Through whom all things were made. So the Son also has a hand in creation. So, so Arianism uh, was a big failure. Oh, uh, one more thing. In addition to condemning Arianism, in addition to formulating the first uh, universal creed of the church, the Council of Nicaea did one more great achievement. And that is, they determined the date of Easter. At that time, different churches were celebrating Easter at different times. Some were even celebrating it in the middle of the week. And Easter is the most important holy day in the church. And so it was decided that there should be an agreement, that we should all celebrate Easter at the same time. 
Did you guys notice that Christmas, for example, always falls on December 25th? It's one of those fixed dates. Easter isn't that way. Easter can be as early as March 23rd, and it can go all the way to mid to late April. So the date of Easter bounces around a lot. That's because, in part, it has to do with the cycle of the moon, uh, for reasons that are, uh, that are beyond the scope of what I want to explain today. But the Council of Nicaea determines that the date of Easter will be on the first Sunday following the first full moon after the vernal equinox. The vernal equinox. What is the vernal equinox, also known as a spring equinox? Did you guys notice? Did you guys notice that the days are getting longer and longer? Okay, as we were plunging toward Christmas, the days were getting shorter and shorter. But then, um, after the the winter solstice, uh, the days began to get longer and longer. Um, by the time it's summertime, it's actually 8 p.m. And it's still bright outside. And so what this means is that a couple of times a year, you're going to have um, equal day, an equal amount of daylight, and an equal amount of sunlight. And this happens in the springtime on March 21st. Okay? That is the... Or, um, it's actually technically, I believe, March 20th astronomically, but according to what the church determined, that would be March 21st is the vernal equinox. So when is Easter? Find out when March 21st is, and then look up at the sky. If you see a full moon, that means the next Sunday is going to be Easter. And of course, all of that can be determined uh, well ahead of time. I mean, uh, astronomers can tell you what the date of Easter is going to be in a couple hundred years, uh, because all of this stuff um, happens on a very predictable basis. So, and, and by the way, I want you to notice that when Easter happens, I want you to look up at the sky and you'll probably see that the, that the moon is actually relatively uh, full because it would have happened right after the full moon. Okay, and the most recently called ecumenical council was the council um, in the 1960s, from 1962 to 1965, that was the Second Vatican Council. And I think I'm going to spend a different session talking about the Second Vatican Council. Um, but that was the most recent one ever held. Uh, ecumenical councils are always held, are always named after the cities in which they are held. So if there was a Vatican II, that means there must have been a Vatican I. And by the way, even Nicaea had a Nicaea I and a Nicaea II. All right. And finally, there's one more term on that sheet, and that is the laity. The laity are all the people in the church who are baptized, but who are not ordained and who are not religious. So if you're baptized and you're not ordained, which means you're not a priest, you're not a deacon, you're not a bishop, or you're not a member of um, a religious order or community, you're not a nun, you're not a monk, you're not a friar, you don't, you're not an Augustinian, 
okay? Um, you don't belong to the Sisters of Charity, okay, if you're a woman. Um, then you are laity, which must be baptized. So you're a member of the church who is not ordained nor religious. And I think that is all for now. I hope that you guys have been taking notes along the way. If you've not, then the beauty of having a podcast is that you can go back and you can write notes. You guys are welcome to use these notes when you take the test. I will take this podcast down, though, very soon. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take the podcast down shortly before the test. I'd say about a half an hour before the test, so please take good notes. And I hope you found this helpful. If you have any questions about anything that you heard, please email me. Um, using Canvas, of course, if you need clarity on any particular issue. Okay, my guys, good luck on that test. Be safe out there and be healthy. All right, bye-bye.